there, or are we going to go from here? Yeah, we're going to... Ah, okay. Yeah, so we're going to um, we're going to speak from up here, especially with Brad's got PowerPoint. Okay, good. So, and then when I'm doing, I don't know if I'm doing Q and A, I might stay there for Q and A. Yeah, I'll probably stay in my seat too. Mm. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And I want to thank you for joining us to discuss whether and how a free market might provide secure health insurance and superior medical care even to the sickest of patients. In February, the Cato Institute published a paper on this topic titled Health Status Insurance, How Markets Can Provide Health Security, authored by John Cochran, one of our speakers today. Now, if you follow health policy, there's a good chance you've never heard of John Cochran. That's because John is not a healthcare wonk. He's an economist and a finance professor at the University of Chicago, where he holds the Myron Scholes Chair at the Booth School of Business. And he can usually be seen writing papers with titles like A Rehabilitation of Stochastic Discount Factor Methodology. Couldn't even get out stochastic. But in 1995, John decided uh, he'd try his hand at health policy, and the result was a paper published in the Journal of Political Economy that was visionary and I would argue revolutionary, that paper explained the likely path that markets would take to provide secure long-term health insurance as well as more choice and better medical care for even the sick. Now, if you've never heard of John's 1995 article, others certainly have. As former Medicare trustee Tom Saving wrote to me recently, a colleague and I have used John's 1995 article as a basis for the development of introducing markets in healthcare. We have presented our work many times. John's recent Cato study is an, essentially an update of his 1995 Journal of Political Economy article, written for the layman and mercifully stripped of dozens of equations. About John's more recent paper, Forbes magazine writes, tackling the problem of the uninsured actually becomes much easier in a world as Cochrane envisions, and it will make medical insurance more affordable for, for everyone. Reason Magazine uh, also describes, well, Reason Magazine describes John's article as, quote, fascinating outside-the-box thinking on health insurance reform and notes that following John's lead, quote, would go a long way towards satisfying President Obama's eight health care reform principles, especially affordability, aiming toward universality, portability, and choice, as well as being fisc fiscally sustainable. Unfortunately, John was not invited uh, to present uh, to President Obama's healthcare summit, but he will be presenting his vision to us today. Now, you may ask, why should we listen to some free market economists talk about free market healthcare reforms when that's not where the action is, in a year where Congress and the president are dead set on taking healthcare in the opposite direction? Well, I think the answer is that John's analysis of how a, a free market would work illuminates how our unfree market currently works and how further efforts to force the healthy to subsidize the sick would do even greater harm to the very people those efforts purport to help. But I must offer this caveat. When I asked John to speak here at Cato, he wrote back, and I quote, happy to do a forum, but you need to be clear that I'm not a health policy expert. I have one little idea from the finance world, but I'm not the type who knows what the reimbursement rate for ingrown toenails in Iowa is. For that, we've invited our second speaker, Bradley Herrick. <laughs> Brad is an assistant uh, professor of economics at Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health. 
Brad is one of the nation's leading researchers on the so-called individual market for health insurance, so much so that John repeatedly cites Brad's research in support of his his thesis. At the same time, however, uh, Brad supports many health insurance reforms that John cautions against, which may make Brad uniquely qualified to uh, comment on and critique John's vision of how health insurance markets would perform in a world with much less regulation. So we're going to start with John Cochran uh, uh, giving his his vision of how uh, less regulated health insurance markets would work. Then... uh, 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 Professor Herring is going to uh, pr- provide comments for us. Then we'll open the uh, floor to the audience for questions. And afterward, we'll ask you to join us upstairs in our winter garden for a lunch reception. So with that, Professor Cochran. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for coming out. And I also want to thank not only Cato for organizing this so nicely, and, and Mike Cannon in particular, who's done a great job. And... and uh, has really helped me a lot on, on this article. When Mike wrote me last summer and said, hey, you want to do something? I said, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, spin off a quick article. No, 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 uh, as draft after draft came back, each one fixed. Hey, how about this? How about that? And Mike really helped me think through a lot of the issues and, and made it a lot better. Um, we do seem headed for a large expansion of the government role in healthcare and a lot, of, uh, lot more regulation of, of what private markets there are. And so the question today is, what is the free market alternative? Is there a free market alternative? How does it look? Um, When when you look at what we have now, a a very currently very regulated system with a a very complex patchwork, you'd think you're staring at a market with some massive failure in it that really needed the government to come in and and run things. Um, I... Like most people here, I, I use this standard economic paradigm when thinking about regulation. Find the market failure. Is there something that really markets can't do? Craft a minimum solution or, or do something like introduce a property right to get the market working. And, and that is how we ought to understand regulation. And, and if you look at health regulation, you'd say, wow, this must be really broken. As I, but as I was thinking about it, I couldn't find where the problem was. And that's what got me thinking about this. And I think that's one helpful thing for us all um, in this time when we're thinking about uh, regulation, let's, uh, let's go back to first principles, really what's broken before we try to fix it. I guess health analogies are going to be all the rage. You know, Diagnose the disease before you decide what the treatment's going to be is a good idea. Um, today, um, let me advertise what I think what I'm going to talk about uh, is a vision, not a plan. Uh, you know how plans look, 100 pages full of every, you know, including the reimbursement rate for toenails in Iowa. Um, let's start with what would a, a as free market as possible um, health system, health insurance system look like? Now, why, uh, you might ask, and, and, you know, being at the Cato Institute, maybe that's a pointless question, but just in case there's any spies in the audience, let me remind us all Competition and, and free choice. Um, we'd all like lower cost, better quality of health care. And the only way you get lower cost and, and better quality of anything is with the, the discipline of competition. Um, and that's especially true, I think, for health care. This is the ultimate uh, service-oriented business. And to get what you and I each want right, we need um, businesses that are really fighting tooth and nail for, for our business, as, as opposed to whether government or regulated some nice, cozy thing that gives us what it feels like. The biggest problem, as I see it, is, is the problem of, um, 
uh, of long-term insurance? What is really standing between us and, and uh, freer markets? There's lots of other little problems, uh, and we can talk about them. But I think this one, at least it stuck me as the one that um, causes the most problem if you want to say, well, you know, markets should be able to provide it. So that problem is that none of us has insurance, really. Um, if you, most of us, I have an employer-based group plan through the University of Chicago. Um, many, most of you probably have something similar. If you get sick, lose your job, uh, get divorced, outgrow your parents' plan, um, and, and then lose that tie to your employer, uh, sooner or later you will lose that health insurance. Now you have a pre-existing condition. So if you can get new private health insurance at all, it's going to be extraordinarily expensive, and you're done. That, uh, you're out of the insurance system. This is a real problem, and it's a real problem for lots of people. We can perhaps dismiss the uninsured as, as the improvident or you know, somebody else's problem, um, but this is a problem for all of us, and I think that's a, a hard, the hard nut to crack that leads many to people to say, well, maybe we need the government to do something about this, or maybe we need some extra, you know, you quickly jump to, well, let's ban the pre-existing conditions clauses. Let's, let's slap some regulation on top of this. Uh, cost and the uninsured, I think, make up the triumvirate of health policy problems. Uh, I'll talk mostly about long-term health insurance today, but I think this also spills over a bit into the, the cost and the uninsured. Once, once you're done with that, you're done. That's, that's the, those are health policy problems. So let's focus on this long-term insurance problem. It seems tough. Um, it seems that you can't allow competition and you can't allow free choice. Um, if we have a system where everybody pays the same uh, health insurance premium and it's competitive, well, then the people who are healthy are paying too much and they have every incentive to go try to leave. And if you have competitive insurers bidding for their business, they have every incentive to say, you're healthy, you know, everyone else is paying 10 bucks, you come on in for five. That, of course, undermines the, uh, the other insurance company who now only has sick people. So it seems that you're stuck, that you can't allow a, a competitive free market in insurance. And I think that's where, that's where we got stuck with this. That leads to bans on, on pre-existing conditions and more deeply to the very regulated, uncompetitive industry that we have now. We just can't let industry, it seems we can't let um, insurers compete. Well, that's not true. And that's the news I come to bring you today. <laughs> the health status insurance um, Actually, Mike came up with that. I, I had much more complicated names. I give my credit for thinking of health status insurance. Here, here's how it works. First of all, let's let's take our put our, our let's find our vision for free market healthcare. How's it going to work? The first thing is it's clear that the medical insurance has to have free risk rating. If, if you're sick, you're going to have to pay more than if you're healthy. That's the only way to allow a competitive market in, 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 um, in health, well, in health care or in, in health insurance. Now, that would actually help some things. Now, you, you wouldn't have pre-existing conditions clauses if insurers were allowed to charge whatever it's going to cost to insure people. If you have cancer, why do they say you can't come in? Well, because they're not allowed to say, sure, come on in, but it's 10 grand a month. Well, that's great. Now, now well, great. <laughs> We've gotten the first stop. We don't, we don't have pre-existing conditions problems, but obviously you're not insured because if you get cancer, you have the financial hit of the $10,000 a month. So that's where step two comes in. What we need is, uh, in addition to a free health insurance market, 
let me call it premium increase insurance. So the day comes, you, you get cancer, uh, you're treated by your current health insurer. Um, then next year, when it's time to look at the health insurance contract, whoops, you had cancer, I'm sorry, you're in our higher risk group, that's going to be a, a lot more money. Um, the premium increase insurer now pays you a lump sum uh, enough to pay the higher health insurance premiums a- as long as you need it. Uh, you really face two risks. You, you face the risk of each year's uh, uncertainty about, uh, about your medical expenses, but you face the risk of premium increases. Well, that's a risk. Insurance companies can insure you for premium increases just as they can insure you for health or, or anything else. Problem solved. Now, let's, uh, let's one little refinement. Um, if people can just get big lump sums of money, that's a temptation to fraud and skullduggery and all sorts of problems. So let's take the, the premium increase payoff. So you, you get a horrible disease. You get your payment from your premium increase insurer or your health status insurer. This allows you to pay higher health insurance premiums. That gets put in a separate account that you can only use to pay health insurance premiums. Otherwise, what do you do? You, you, you get a crazy diagnosis, you say, I want my money, and then you run off to Cuba with your $50,000. Well, well, maybe not Cuba. Let's try to find a more pleasant tropical resort that um, extradition doesn't work on. Um, but by putting it in, in, a, in, a, in a separate account, in a custodial account, that can only be used to pay uh, medical premiums, you've pretty much solved that problem. Um, Now, let's think about what that does. We have now solved the pre-existing conditions problem. We've solved the losing your health insurance problem. Um, You you have, you are completely insured against uh, against anything that could happen to you. You've got lifetime health insurance. You're going to pay the same amount out of pocket for the rest of your life, no matter how, how sick you get. That's nice. We've solved the basic problem. But it gets better. You now have complete freedom. You don't have to stick in your job or or stay married. Well, you might want to do that for other reasons, but you don't have to do that for health insurance reasons. You can now take your your account, your premium increase account, if you're sick, change jobs, move somewhere else, um, do anything you want, and and you can always buy medical insurance. In fact, you can change your medical insurer. You're not not, um, held to the good graces of, of one medical insurer to take care of you. You have the ability to pay the higher premiums that anybody would charge you. So if you don't like their, you know, how they're treating you, yeah, go find somebody else. And that opens the door to competition. If everybody's free to choose, then, of course, insurers can be allowed to compete mercilessly. Insurers will then compete for the business of sick people. Now insurers don't want sick people. If, if, they, if you go in the door and you look a little gray in the face, they say, eh, I'm sorry, not you, because they're worried that you, know, you might be one of those costly sick people. But if they can charge you enough... They'll compete like crazy for the business of really sick people and give them better treatments, uh, better service, um, try to find new, new, new treatments for them, as well as, of course, uh, competing for the business of healthy people like, like you and me who just would like to not have to wait six weeks to see our doctor. I, sh- I should have added frustrated patient to the list of things that got me, <laughs> me going to think about this. Furthermore, it can, it can help you carry through gaps. One of the problems now is if you have a job and decide to take some time off, say to raise a family or, or, or something of the sort, and then want to get a new job, well, there's, through that gap in coverage, um, you, you can get stuck. Well, even if you decide not to have your health insurance for a while, you've still got the account of the premium insurance. 
So then you can reestablish health insurance anytime you want. Now, I've described a fairly abstract system, and I don't want you to get focused on the accounts. There's many, many ways to implement the same thing. I think this is the, economic, the clearest way to understand how it works. If you get worried about practicalities, we can think about lots of other ways that are, are equivalent to the same thing. The key is that you have the right to buy insurance in the future at a prearranged price. That's the first key. And the second key that it's, is that it's collateralized. Um, collateral is a great thing in a lot of, uh, in a lot of contracts. And by, there's a pot of money there that, me, that guarantees you're going to have this right, even if the person you bought the right to buy health insurance from goes out of business or, or is gone somewhere. Now, let's think about the alternatives. Uh, you know, how is insurance, how are the other ways of running insurance? Are they better, worse? Uh, how, how well do they approach what I, th- I think is pretty clear? That's how a free market would work. And we can stop and say, oh, whew, there is at least a way a free market would work. Um, it's just a question of how do we get there? How do we implement uh, what's a pretty clear idea? So what we've got now is group insurance, uh, largely employer-based groups. Um, the idea is that uh, everybody in the group pays the same premium, and the uh, healthy people cross-subsidize the sick people. Now, obviously, this isn't a great system for long-term health insurance. If you, in the best of all worlds here, if it really worked, once you get sick, you depend on that group for the rest of your life. Um, those people, you know, those people have to pay high expenses, and they're not going to want to pay high expenses. Um, we'll see, you have to somehow get that out of them. You do, they want to cost contain you, not compete for your business. Whereas, of course, you can't allow choice or, or competition. I mean, if in each business, um, if you're a healthy person, you and your employer are contributing too much, you certainly can't be allowed the choice to go off and spend less on this because otherwise there's no one to cross-subsidize the sick people. And, of course, people change groups. The whole problem with employer-based groups is some pe- as people change employment, some people fall through the cracks. This all, where do you go? Well, as, as we try to patch this together, the obvious patches to apply to the system are more regulation. Oh, force, force new groups to take people on, uh, keep people from competing, and so on and so forth. The only logical conclusion of that approach to things is, well, one big group. That's called national health insurance, um, which uh, has its uh, inefficiencies that <clears throat> we all know about. Now, groups, why are we stuck with this system? Uh, this isn't because anyone was stupid. It's an accident of history. Group insurance actually would work quite well if illnesses were temporary. If what we were doing was insuring you against a broken bone, and so health insurance was there to pay 2000 bucks if you break a bone, but that every year people who broke their bones last year aren't any more likely to get sick this year, group insurance would work fine because each person ahead of time looks the same. You move to another group, so what? You're allowed in just like everybody else. The problem with group insurance comes when there is something long-lasting about his illness, when people can get sick for a long time. Well, when group insurance started, it's a historical accident. In World War II, the tax deductibility for employer-provided group insurance came in as a way to get around price controls. And back then, um, how can I say this and not sound heartless, if you got sick, there wasn't much we could do for you. So the, the idea of long-term diseases that were expensive uh, that, that just wasn't that much of a fact of life. Um, people did get sick, but they just died cheaply and quietly. We're very fortunate that that's not the world that we have now. Um, well, how about individual long-term policies? Um, 
Now, the basics of an individual long-term policy suffers from the same kind of problems. If you have an individual long-term policy rather than an employer-provided group, then they're supposed to take care of you forever. The problem with that is if it's just a policy that lasts one year and you get sick, then they may not want to renew you or they may want to raise your rates. The solution to that is to have individual insurance uh, be guaranteed renewable. Uh, so that once you enter this policy, you always have the right to continue that policy at the same premiums. And that's, in fact, how individual insurance works. Uh, Markets came up with this in the mid-1990s as it became clear this was a problem. In the same way, life insurance is also guaranteed renewable. It's nice to see the market does respond and and meet this demand uh, for this problem. And that that solves 90%, I would say, uh, of the issue. If we, if we went to guaranteed renewable individual insurance rather than employer-based groups, uh, a, lot of this, a lot of this portability problem would go away. Now, it's not quite as good. Uh, I, I view that as the cake and the system I've described as, as sort of the frosting. Um, why? If, if you have individual guaranteed renewable insurance, you are still tied to one insurance company for life. Once you get sick... Um, no one else is going to take you. So you've got to try to get these people to pay off. And you're, you're a cost center for the rest of your life. They have every incentive to try uh, and mistreat you. Now, you know, maybe they can be forced to honor their contracts. Uh, maybe not. Um, but nonetheless, you're stuck to that one insurer for life. And worse, if they go bankrupt, then you're really stuck. If, and, and we've just learned that large companies do go bankrupt. Well, they used to go bankrupt. Uh, <laughs> um, or the government takes them over, which isn't going to be great news for those of you with expensive diseases. If you move and that insurance isn't in your area, you're stuck. I mean, you're depending on this one company for the rest of your life. Well, hmm, what could we do to fix that? I got an idea. Why don't we occasionally settle up? So if, you're in a, in a, uh, if you have a condition that's going to cost, I don't know, $20,000 a year, let's just settle up. Let's make a lump sum payment. Let's, uh, let's give you some collateral against that long-term debt that the company has to you. And then if we break up, you're still insured. Well, that's exactly health status insurance. You can understand health status insurance as just a refinement of individual life insurance with a guaranteed renewable provision, where every now and then the accountants, the accountants of, the, of the insurance company have got to say, look at poor Mike. Sorry to pick on you today. He's sick. He's going to cost us $20,000 a year. That lowers the value of the company by X. Well, if we just pay Mike X, settling up that long-term debt, then Mike's free to leave. We've wiped the toxic asset off our books. Everything's the same. Um, so, in fact, that, the health status insurance is just can be viewed just as this refinement on individual life insurance. Um, and, and other ideas. United Health just came up with a very interesting plan. You can now buy the right to buy health insurance in the future. So the newspaper article quoted 50 bucks a month, and then in the future, you can buy health insurance from them at rates that depend on, on your health today. That's almost health status insurance. We're really close. The only difference is um, the health status insurance gives you the right to buy it from anyone, not just from United Health, and it's, it's collateralized. So if United Health goes under, you have the resources to get it from someone else. Again, you can see that the market is, is moving in the natural direction, if we would let it. The fourth one I think I'll talk about it, alternatives. The, the insurance companies just came up with a proposal last week that uh, they would say, hey, um, let, let us have a chance. What we will do is ban preexisting con- conditions clauses, 
and charge the same premium for everybody and therefore solve the portability. Now I'm worried about this one. Um, you know, what if the airlines say we're going to charge everyone the same amount? The only way to make that work is to have somebody stop the insurance companies from competing for healthy people. If they ban pre-existing conditions clauses and say everyone pays the same rate, what stops a new insurance company from finding the healthy people and trying to grab them? Somebody's got to stop them, and, and I smell a rat that somebody's going to have to be the government. Um, a cozy, protected oligopoly is, is not that much better than, than a government-provided health insurance. So what can we do? Let's talk about policy. Um, the most important policy step, uh, I think, is to, um, to end or modify the tax deductibility of employer-provided group insurance. If you want to keep a tax subsidy for health insurance, which we can talk about, that's a separate issue, at least you should be able, you should get a tax subsidy for an individual guaranteed renewable and hopefully plus health status insurance policy that you take with you. Without inventing anything new, let's just take what we have right now. If your employer bought for you a individual policy rather than a group plan, then when you lose that job or when you move on, then you've got health insurance and we've solved this problem. Um, the rest is, is, is frosting on the cake. In fact, come to think of it, if we have a policy, a tax deductibility or a regulatory or other pressure for health insurance, it should prefer individual policies. We should ban group insurance. Why? Because group insurance is when people get sick, they leave and, foist, and they get foisted off on the taxpayer. If, if we're going to force anything, we should force a system that we have now, which is portable, uh, as opposed to one that, that, that doesn't work. Of course, uh, uh, removing limits on pre-existing conditions and uh, limits on competition will, will get this whole thing going. That's, that's, we now have a solution to the problem. We don't have to stop insurance companies from competing with each other. Let me make a few comments about cost. Um, one of the natural objections is, oh, but individual policies cost more. Well, they cost more for a lot of reasons. One is they provide more. Um, a group insurance that doesn't have to pay for the sick people because they leave isn't as much insurance as an individual insurance policy that stays with you for life. So, uh, and essentially is using the put option to the taxpayer that they're going to cover the, the, the people who get sick and, and leave. So you should expect to pay more for something that provides more and something that provides more in a, in a socially useful way, something that provides more that then the taxpayer doesn't have to, have to pay. Individual insurance also costs more because it's a bad pool. Right now, healthy people tend to be employed and unhealthy people tend not to be. So if all the insurance company knows about you is that you've got to go buy an individual policy, they know you're likely to be sick. sick you're more likely to be sick. That gets fixed if, if we all move to individual insurance policies. We should expect to see those prices come down. And, of course, um, the, the magic of, of competition. Uh, once we have a competitive system, we should expect it all to cost a lot less. Cost in general is really, we're really talking about insurance today, not about care. And the reason cost is high is because care is expensive. And care is expensive is because it's not particularly competitive. Um, most of the solutions we're being told about cost are, are pretty clear won't work. So the great economies of scale of a, a national health insurance system, let me pose it this way. Oh, boy, the airlines, airlines are a mess, but they're really cheap. Um, wouldn't it make sense, there's a great economies of scale to have one national airline run, run by the government, right? Then we wouldn't have all this wasteful competition. 
well, as you can, one of the many things that would happen is ticket prices would go way, way up. The cost is here in running a very complex service-oriented business, and the only answer to that is competition. Of course, as we, we shouldn't get too deep into cost, as we all know, the, uh, um, there's a stranglehold on the supply of doctors and, and all those other uh, things keeping us uh, from a from competitive market. Uh, my last comment, the uninsured. Well, what about the uninsured? Um, some people are uninsured uh, because they're sick and insurance is expensive. We solved that problem. In fact, the mass, vast majority of uninsured that we worried about are people who get you know, liver disease and, and now can't afford insurance. Well, uh, that problem gets solved. Um, poor people are, are uninsured. Um, well, competition in a revived cash market should help them a lot. And a small number of, of healthy people uh, choose not to be insured for reasons that are, are perfectly understandable. One is we don't let people die in the streets. And so uh, you can afford to let yourself be uninsured if it's a small probability event. And the second is, uh, as much of a rationalist as I am, it is true that some people, especially young healthy people, ignore small probability events. And I think we should take this seriously. Most of our hedge fund managers... Uh, people running banks and government regulators ignored small probability events recently, so it's perfectly natural that people do. These are well understood, although very small, but genuine reasons for some regulation. Um, so I, um, we can discuss what the right thing to do is. Mike, Mike doesn't like any regulation, but uh, in the you know the the remaining small number of people. Well, I, I shouldn't put words in your mouth. The remaining small number of people who choose not to buy insurance are just a little bit improvident. Some small nudge towards buy some insurance, buddy, is, is probably okay. Uh, that may be a reason to tax deduct an employer contribution to an individual plan so that anytime you get a job, the first thing you do is you sign up for individual health insurance, get people into the system. Um, um, uh, or other small nudges to get people to buy health insurance. Okay, uh, bottom line, uh, a free market... Uh, health insurance system is possible. I've given you a vision for how it could work. It solves uh, the main problem, portability, completely. It helps a lot on the cost and uninsured problem. A cost, there's no, until it's free, there's no way to say the problem is solved, but certainly it, uh, competition will reduce cost and enhance patient satisfaction enormously. Um, and and uh, on the uninsured, it helps a lot by making the insurance system work much better, getting uh, sick people back into the insurance system. Uh, we're back to the minor question of um, incentives to get uh, young, healthy people some nudge into the system. Uh, but that's, uh, if we were talking about that level of competition uh, versus regulation, uh, we would be in a completely different world. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Cochran. Uh, for the record, I think that contracts and torts are fine forms of regulation. Um, and uh, with that, we'll turn things over to Professor Herring, whose uh, PowerPoint presentation will be thrown up on the screen momentarily. Nice. Did my voice do that? Thanks, Michael. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, appreciate the opportunity. All right, great. So, um, oh, yeah, I should have mentioned. Okay. Wow, this is, all right, cool. So, yeah, so hi, I'm Brad Herring, uh, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins in the School of Public Health there. And so Michael asked me to come and talk about essentially uh, a couple of things. Um, one, kind of answer this question, well, what do the data tell us? And so I've done 
some research, as, as Michael mentioned, on the individual health insurance market. And so um, spend a little bit of time talking about um, these, these two questions here. Um, one is um, myself and a colleague, we use medical expenditure data to essentially cost out what this premium path might look like um, with time-consistent health insurance or guaranteed renewability, um, and, and, and just wanted to look at what it would actually, um, how it would seem. Um, the second thing I'll discuss is that, uh, again, with this, this colleague of mine, Mark Polly, um, we actually looked at uh, real data for transactions in the individual health insurance market and asked, um, well, what actually happens to them now, um, and particularly, particularly what happens to people with chronic health conditions? Are they less likely to get coverage? Are they um, more likely to spend more? Um, so I'll t spend a little time talking about that. And then, I guess, finally, I'll um, actually try and, try and spend a little bit of time, brief, brief amount of time, trying to give my thoughts and perspectives on this question. Can the market provide choice and secure health coverage even for health high-cost illnesses. Okay, so, so talk about these different approaches. Try and talk about the pros and cons of um, um, health status insurance versus guaranteed renewability, and, and perhaps even talk about a third. Okay, so, so I wanted to do PowerPoint to use some, some graphs to try and help illustrate uh, these, these concepts floating around here. And so maybe I'll try another crack at um, explaining this notion of guaranteed renewability or um, health status insurance with this graph here. So suppose, suppose simply that someone is either high risk or low risk. If they're low risk, they're at this bottom flat bar. If they're high risk, they're at this top bar, and they pay a premium of, say, I think in, in, in John's paper, you know, $2,000 if you're healthy and, and $10,000 if you're sick. And so what then what the age-rated one curving up just reflects that as time goes on, a higher proportion of people develop a chronic health condition and, um, and, and wind up on that high-risk premium. Okay. So the, the guaranteed renewable approach would be to say, well, let's have everybody in this same pool pay the same premium, but you need to front-load it so that the healthy people don't face this incentive to defect, okay? And in terms of the health status insurance world, what you would have going on in this situation is an insurer would be free to tailor premiums to your health status, right? So depending on whether you're healthy or sick, the health insurer would charge you this low-risk premium or the high-risk premium, but then you'd have this health status insurance which is essentially represented by the difference between the P sub GR, the guaranteed renewable premium, and the low-risk premium, okay? So, you, so at, at you know, the beginning age, you're paying this, um, and you're a healthy person, you're paying the low-risk premium, but then on top of that, you're paying this um, health insurance premium, sorry, uh, health status premium to insure against the risk of becoming high-risk, Okay. And so, so really the, the, the difference between the guaranteed renewable um, scheme is that it's one premium that you pay, the, the P sub GR, whereas the premium, sorry, the health status insurance component um, separates these out into two health insurance contracts. Okay. So if you take a step back and you look at what the theory predicts here, some people have argued, well, okay, gosh, um, this premium path for guaranteed renewable insurance or paying this um, health status insurance might actually wind up being very, very expensive for people who are young. Is this affordable? 
Okay. So what um, Mark and I sought to do is actually use data. And so, so I, I've referenced Mark. Mark Pauly, uh, along with Howard Kunruther and Richard Hirth, wrote a, wrote a paper in the mid-'90s kind of setting out this guaranteed renewable premium path with similar predictions to what John has in his um, JPE paper. Um, but what we sought to do in this uh, 2006 paper in Journal Health Economics is actually get our hands on medical expenditure data and just cost it out, see what it would look like. Okay? And so what this uh, figure from, the, from our paper shows is that, well, if you've got the healthy people on the bottom in these uh, diamonds and the sick people up top with the squares, and these sick people, I mean, this is really the average of some people who are very sick and some people are just, I guess, kind of sick. If you then cost out what this incentive-compatible guaranteed renewable premium schedule looks like, it winds up being this dark set of, of Xs, right? And so this, this initial concern you might have, well, oh, oh, wow, you know, are these premiums affordable, unaffordable with such high front-loading? We kind of said, well, yeah, there's front-loading, but it doesn't necessarily seem you know, terribly unaffordable, okay? So, so again, to kind of put the two proposals into, into perspective, the guaranteed renewable approach says, okay, you just pay this one premium and it's indicated by the Xs, whereas the health status insurance would say, well, an insurer's free to charge you your high-risk premium or your low-risk premium, but you're paying this difference between the low-risk premium and the guaranteed renewable premium in your health status insurance. And then what the health status insurance is doing is giving you this lump sum in order to pay the uh, high-risk premium if that's what, uh, what you've got to pay. Okay. So this is what the theory predicts, right, this, this set of Xs. So then we actually looked at, well, okay, let's get our hands on some actual premiums, right? So let me back up and say when we did this, this was all just using medical expenditure data from something called the MEPS, right? So basically claims for people in a given year, and we pieced it all together and, and asked what the premium would look like. This instead takes individual insurance premium data from household surveys, uh, MEPS, Community Tracking Study, National Health Interview Survey, and just plots the average premium that a person pays at a given age. And so on average, the premiums seem to replicate this optimal GR path um, pretty closely, right? There's this element of front-loading in that uh, the premiums are higher uh, than average for people when they're young and relatively lower than average when people are old, okay? So it's kind of consistent with this theory of GR. But then what we sought to do in an additional paper is, is to actually use this individual-level data and test this more carefully and examine individual coverage decisions, individual premiums um, in the individual market um, for, for people who are healthy and sick differentially. And, and one of the focuses of this paper was to distinguish what happens for individuals in states with community rating and guaranteed issue versus states without community rating and guaranteed issue and what I'll talk about now is really what happened in the states, the unregulated states or loosely regulated states without community rating or guaranteed issue because that's essentially analogous to, to what we're talking about here in terms of allowing individual insurers to, to tailor premiums how they wish. 
Okay. So the punchline from, from, uh, from this paper, and actually there's a couple. There's an NBR paper that's a little more technical and a health affairs paper that's a little more um, policy friendly. Um, but the takeaway is to say, well, all right, consider somebody who's pretty sick, right? The 95th percentile of the distribution of, of health. And so we, we developed this measure called condition-related re- condition health that essentially takes for a person at a given age, you know, what's the distribution of health status, right? So if, if you're in the 95th percentile of this condition-related expense measure, it's basically saying for you, someone in their late 30s, like where are you relative to other males in their late 30s, okay? So somebody who's pretty sick, 95th percentile, um, that person with a uh, you know, chronic health condition like um, cancer or diabetes would have health care spending that's uh, a little higher than twice what the median person faces, 110% higher than what the median faces. Okay. So then we estimated some models and said, well, what's the, what's the impact on whether someone purchases insurance? And again, this is somebody purchasing individual insurance in a state without community rating or guaranteed issue. And what we found is that you are less likely to be insured if you have higher chronic um, condition-related expenses. And so someone specifically at this 95th percentile is about 12 to 13% less likely than someone at the average or median to be insured, right? So essentially consistent with one of two things or both, right? So one is that the insurers just say, well, you know, screw it. We're not going to cover you. You're, you're, um, we're just concerned about pricing a plan to you, and, and we're just not going to sell you something. Or the insurer comes back with a sufficiently high premium that they feel reflects the risk of this person, but the person finds it unaffordable and, and decides um, not to purchase that plan. So the second, or actually, I guess the third thing here, but the thing really to highlight in terms of the premiums and what might be going on with the, the pricing here is that when we looked at this data carefully, for somebody who's sicker, again, measured by this condition-related expense measure, somebody at the 95th percentile of spending, and again, with, with spending being about twice the average or median, 110% higher, that person we observed only paid a premium that was between 7 and 11% higher, right? Which, which is inconsistent with this um, uh, approach. You might say, well, okay, these individual insurers are clearly risk rating. Somebody gets sick, they're insured, well, they're, they're socking it to them and they're raising their premium, right? This notion of risk rating every year. And so what we find is it's the, the individual insurers aren't behaving like that. It seems like they're actually behaving pretty consistent with what the guaranteed renewability feature says, which is an insurer may underwrite you upon applying, right? So, so when you apply, if you're sick, we're going to charge you a higher premium. But if you're healthy, we'll charge you the guaranteed renewable premium so that you get into this pool, the GR pool, and then a year later, five years later, 10 years later, if you become sick, rather than re-underwrite you and start charging you a higher premium. Instead, we're going to keep you in the, within this initial pool and your premium isn't going to jump, right? And so with the data we had with purchases in the individual market, we can't really test this explicitly in terms of what happens to people 
as they march along over time. But we thought it was very consistent with a claim that the majority of people in the individual market actually have guaranteed renewability. And so people who are sick now but were healthy when they purchased it are protected, whereas the people who are sick and purchasing, trying to purchase individual insurance um, for the first time, that those applicants are, are being rated. Okay. So, so that's kind of um, the first half of, of what I'd like to talk about, which is um, referencing these, these two papers I've done with, uh, with Mark and how they um, are, are consistent with um, this notion of thinking about health insurance over time and the risk of becoming a high risk. And, and in some sense, you know, thinking that uh, even unregulated markets have seemed to, um, to, 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 to um, offer this feature. But now let me just spend a little bit of time um, highlighting some of these uh, pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages of, of three different approaches. Um, really taking the approach of saying, how do we pool risks in private health insurance coverage? Okay. So the first thing I'll do is just contrast some of the, the, the pros and cons of the guaranteed renewable approach versus the health status insurance approach. And just the first one is, is something that's been discussed already significantly, which is under guaranteed renewability, a high-risk person is essentially locked into that plan, and they can't switch, right? Whereas John's approach with breaking it apart into two different pieces really allows somebody to have portable insurance, okay? And so um, there's specific data in this, in this GR paper we have in the JHE, but um, by, 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 someone is, um, by the time someone's 65, actually at age 64, a little over 40% of people have a chronic health condition, right? So these 40% of the population would be locked in, and it's really the 60% remaining at age 64 who would really be able to bounce around and, and, and shop across insurers, whereas this is more like, say, 5% or so in, for, for individuals in the late 20s, early 30s. Okay. Okay. So potential disadvantages of this health status insurance approach, and so... I think I'm going to try and tackle this from, from two perspectives simultaneously. I guess one is, is more in terms of my approach as a pragmatist as opposed to an ideologue. Um, and so, so I'll just try and, try and point out some practical problems um, or, or potential problems, right? But the other thing I'll try and mention is that if, if this is being pushed as, as essentially, you know, the market way with limited or essentially no... Um, government involvement, this is the solution, um, I'll just try and point out some instances where, well, no, actually, you might have to still require some government intervention. Okay. So I think this first question is actually not particularly spot on. Um, if people purchased health status insurance and didn't have the ability to cash out and have it into an account, then, yeah, I think there would be this issue of, of lock-in with uh, your health status insurance. Um, but, but so long as people can actually cash out and get it um, placed into this account, um, um, that's not going to be the case, and people could actually shop around for different health insurance, um, health status insurance plans. Okay? Um, the second one, I think, is a little more significant. If you actually start to talk about or look at data for administrative costs, across different modes of insurance. Um, an administrative cost is, you know, essentially what's tacked on top of the premium um, and money that, that we as consumers don't get back. 
in, in, in um, benefits, right? So money that goes to, to administering the plan and profits for the insurer. In the individual market, this is almost 35%, um, similar but a little lower for the really, really small group market, but can get very low out with um, large employment-based pools, uh, you know, less than 10% with over 1,000 workers, okay? So if you think about, well, what, take a step back and say, well, what, dry, what drives this differential? All right, well, one thing is certainly there's just fixed costs to administer a plan, and those fixed costs get spread out more when a group is larger. Okay, so that's one reason we can think about, or one explanation for this discrepancy. A second one is that, well, the larger firms have negotiating power to get a lower premium with these um, insurers, and, and perhaps you could argue that maybe you want some uh, monopsonist power among the large employers if you've got a, um, uh, don't have a heavily, um, or have a concentrated insurance market. So that might be the second point. But I think the third thing which winds up being particularly relevant here is that if you're an insurer and you're selling in the individual market or the very small group market, what do you do? You submit your applicants to medical underwriting. You collect a lot of information about their health status and you figure out how you're going to rate them and, and the like, okay? And so I think that's part of this differential here for why administrative costs are relatively high in the individual and small group market, right? So these insurers are underwriting. Well, currently in the individual market, if you believe this guaranteed renewability story, they're underwriting once at the time of application, right? And then once you're in, you're in, right? Well, now let me go back here. Under the joint program of health status insurance and risk rating allowed by individual insurers, this medical underwriting process occurs every year rather than just once, and it occurs <clears throat> um, at both the individual insurer level and the health status insurer level and perhaps even, even the government in terms of if, if you have the government coming in and, and perhaps trying to deposit some money into the account to protect um, poor, sick people. Okay. So, so, so one concern or potential concern is that this may be administratively costly. Okay. And, then, and then a third point is that... Um, you know, as, as John said earlier, you know, thinking about this in terms of um, setting out a vision as opposed to like a plan per se, but you know, at some point this would have to get pushed into a plan. And, and here I'll maybe put on my, my Cato hat and say, well, um, well if, if I were to be um, um, taking it from this perspective, if, if the approach is to really get minimal government involvement, I mean, one of the things John says about the paper is that, well, you perhaps need to get some, some classification system as there's transitions from one health insurer to a new health insurer, right? So if you leave your existing health insurer and want to get this um, payment from your health status insurance and enroll into a new plan, there's got to be some level of consistency, perhaps, in terms of how these individual insurers rate, and so, so he, you know, puts this forward as saying, well, maybe you can consider 10 rating categories. And so I guess I'll just ask the question, well, 10 rating categories 
set forth by whom, right? The government, if, if your approach here is to really get the government out, I think implementation is still going to have it um, creep in, okay? And, and I guess in the interest of time, I think there's potential concerns about adverse selection within, even if you have these broad categories. But, I mean, that's a criticism across all health insurance, so it's probably not really fair to level it here. Um, but you can also think about perhaps perverse incentives moving from one insurer to the new insurer. The new insurer may think you're or want to claim you know, you're level seven, uh, relatively sick, whereas your exiting insurer, um, um, health, in, health status insurance plan might say, well, no, we really think you're, you're level six. And so what's going to go on in terms of these two insurers um, battling out? Okay. So the final thing here uh, before this, this, this next couple slides is in his paper, John makes a couple of uh, throwaway comments about, well, technically, you know, you could you can get rid of Medicare and, and expand this out to, to the point somebody dies. You could even back it out to, to, to think about kids and getting this health ins status insurance when, when someone's born. But I think adding Medicare folks and backing this out to birth is going to change this uh, slope significantly and might yield premiums that um, could be unaffordable. Okay. Um, so could work in theory, but in, but in practice it might just be pretty, pretty expensive. Okay. So to round this out, the end result here, what, what happens with this guaranteed renewability world? What happens with um, 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 health status insurance? My, my spell checker kept changing HSI to SHI for some God knows reason. I don't know why. But okay, so, so take a step back and say, well, if this was in place, what would we observe in equilibrium, right? What would be the end result at the end of the day? Well, I think we'd predict that everyone would have a choice of private health insurers, right? So there'd be a um, choice that would be met, right? Everyone would obtain at least some minimum level of coverage, right? It'd be in everybody's interest to insure against high risks, and these choice would be reflected by different people's preferences, at the end of the day, the premium someone would pay, actually, I guess the net premium if you take into account the risk-rated premium less the health status insurance payment, um, this net premium someone pays, at the end of the day, doesn't vary with health status. Okay? And then the third thing is that premiums would increase with age, but not proportionately. Right? So there might be some, some front-loading going on. Okay. So that'd be kind of the predictions of what you'd expect under this, this model. But if we take a step back and say, well, I don't know, do these seem reasonable? I don't know. I'd, I'd say, yeah, right? So we want people to have a choice of, of health insurers, private health insurers. That seems pretty reasonable. Um, certainly seems reasonable to get everybody a minimum level of coverage, okay, right? Um, yeah, if we think about this risk of becoming a high risk, yeah, it seems reasonable to think about not allowing, or not, not allowing, but not having premiums vary with risk at the end of the day. And then perhaps, yeah, having premiums increase with age seems pretty reasonable, okay? So if we think these are reasonable outcomes, I don't know, they're essentially the same here if you think about what's kind of on the table, I mean, particularly from Bennett Wyden, and then to some degree what could come out of the, the, the Congress now in terms of what they're talking about, which is a health insurance exchange offering 
um, you know, choice of plans, private plans, perhaps coupled with tax reform. So my personal preference would be to really switch to a to an income-related tax credit, which I know gets Michael uh, <laughs> sends shivers up Michael's spine. But if coupling this notion of an exchange with um, with perhaps an individual mandate, so you so you um, tackle this problem of adverse selection, allow modified community rating in which premiums don't vary with health status but can vary with age, I think you get these same set of, of outcomes. And so then I guess the question maybe to leave to you all with your questions is, you know, what's, what, are, what are the real concerns here with this approach of, of thinking about a health insurance exchange with some regulation of the insurers coupled with a mandate? Sorry. All right, thanks. Sorry for going over Uh, thank you, Brad. Um, I want to thank you for highlighting that, you know, in, in, in all discussions of health policy, what we have to be doing is comparing uh, uh, different flawed alternatives with one another because uh, there is no nirvana, there is no perfect plan. And uh, before we go to questions, I want to ask Professor Cochran if he wants to take just a couple of minutes to respond to anything that uh, Professor Herring said. Uh, just a couple of minutes, though, because I want to leave plenty of time for the audience to ask okay. any questions that they've got. I, I promise. Uh, just two comments. I do want to emphasize, I think we agree a lot more than it sounds like um, uh, on the spectrum of things where, you know, the 99 and 100th percentile together here. Um, guaranteed renewable individual insurance bundles two things. It bundles health insurance, and it bundles the right to future health insurance. Um, now, it that's a good thing to have, but people might want to move to a different insurer. And it might be nice to collateralize that right so that if your insurer goes bankrupt, you still have something. That's really the only difference. Uh, Health status insurance just allows you to take that right to future insurance and have future insurance from a different company anytime you want it. And it collateralizes that right so that you've got the money in case your insurer uh, goes under and you don't have to go to bankruptcy court to try and collect on that, that right to future insurance. Now, how often should we, um, sh- should we do this? How often should we mark this to market, collateralize it, give you your chance to move? I think one day might be too often for the contracting costs that Brad mentioned. Never sounds a little bit too infrequently. For, which, for the reason that the one thing that Brad's list left off is competition. If you're locked into an individual contract with one company for life, we've just ruled out the opportunity of other companies to come in and give you, uh, give you something better. So where's the optimum? Now we're into this nebulous world of contracting costs. Uh, somewhere in there, maybe not a year, maybe every five years, maybe you get the right, if you ever are unhappy, you get the right to go in and we'll settle up and let you go where you want. Um, you know, th- there's, there's an optimum somewhere in there depending on, on how these costs uh, work out. Okay, so uh, we're going to take your questions now. I want to ask you a couple of things. First, to wait for the microphone to come to you, and then when the microphone arrives... Uh, do a couple of things for me. Let me know your name, uh, your affiliation, if you've got one, and please please be sure that you're actually asking a question <laughs> because often that does not happen. Uh, gentleman on the aisle here. Uh, yes, Bob Blanford from Consumers for Healthcare Choices. Uh, I'd be interested, uh, Mr. Herring said that it would be uh, too expensive to go from birth to death. <clears throat> be pretty easy to estimate that, I think, with Medicare 
mm-hmm. data and children's expenses and so forth? Yeah, no, so, so uh, yeah, it can be estimated for sure. For I'd sure. be surprised. I'm, why do you think it would be so expensive? Um, because people over 65 are very expensive. But people under 21 or so are oh, cheap. True, true. All right, but so, so what would have to happen, right? So when, so when, when someone's born, in order to really fully implement this, like, you know, the whole 10 yards, right? When someone's born, you would have to set aside all the money that someone would pay if they're not healthy, right? So, so that this probability of, of being sick at birth or, you know, and then again, you know, at age one would have to discount all the future spending until death, right? If Medicare doesn't exist, um, you've got to account for that and bring it all the way back right, right, at I think year got one. You. I think because the taxpayers are going to, I mean, somebody has to pay for it. So, I mean, just to say it's too expensive doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we get money no. falling from the sky to pay for everyone over 65. No, so, the question is, do you pay for it or do taxpayers pay for it? Right. Legitimate points. I'm just saying <laughs> that, you know, if, if you were to run the numbers and, and, and cost it out, that, that's, what you'd have, that's, what, that's what you'd get to. You'd have to, you'd have to get somebody, a parent, you'd have to get a parent purchasing a policy for their kid at birth that insures against all the costs. That's a or before that. Years, 65 years of interest rates discount stuff a lot. So I, I think you've got to come up with the numbers before. Uh, well, I, I'll, <laughs> I'm, uh, but, but along those lines also, I mean, there's, there's also the, if the goal here is really to get pooled health insurance risks, um, this could work, right, costing it back all the way out to 65 if there's truly an equal or a random probability that my kid is healthy versus sick, right? But I think we're moving in a direction where this health status insurer would take a look at my health claims and my health status and underwrite the plan for my kid's health status insurance based upon my health status. And so you wouldn't, I think, achieve perfect pooling for my kid because he'd be influenced by my you know, poor diet or um, you know, unlucky genes from my parents. Damn them. Let's not watching us fight is okay. as interesting as answer. All right, well, we had a question down here from Eduardo. Eduardo uh, Siguel. And my question is about what I see as some potential flaws, which I will list a few, and you guys can uh, tear them down. Uh, I see four key issues in, insu- in health insurance that you did not quite address, as O'Connor and Cochrane, you wrote about this in one of your papers I read. And, and there's a fundamental difference between health insurance and dishwasher insurance, and it's basically that we don't like to die, and we want to change our parts, and we cannot get replacements. The fundamental, the second important thing that tied up with that is what you mentioned, that in the last 50 years, we have moved from a situation where you get very sick with an incurable cancer, you die, now we can cure you. And we can cure you if we're willing to spend a million or five million, ten million. We are going to have solutions for almost every spare part in the body. So it's unlimited money. And because of that, really health insurance is kind of a Ponzi scam. There is not enough money for any premiums 
to pay for the future, but will really cost to keep somebody alive. So the way insurance works is we have a premium and a manager tries to restrict care through a variety of things to cut down the premium. So what are you going to do when you have a price now for the future when in reality the future insurer will decide we only got 50 bucks per person, whatever, so I'm going to restrict your insurance. So if we're going to restrict insurance and have limited insurance and so on, then there's no problem with pre-existing conditions. We can cover them with other restrictions anyway, so we don't need any of these schemes. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's a question. Um, there's the problem of health insurance that we call it moral hazard, that if the health insurer says, I'll pay anything you want, just turn in a receipt from a doctor, people all of a sudden decide they need to see the doctor a lot more often. Uh, we're not going to get around that. So the usual co-pays and deductibles, that's how co-pays, deductibles, and limits are how insurance companies deal with these things. I got nothing to say about new on, on those. You know, you got to have those things. I would say one defect of the employer-provided group system is that it provides an incentive to move as much under the tax screen as possible. Why is it that health insurance often pays for first dollars of things, perfectly foreseeable things like annual checkups? Why should insurance pay for an annual checkup? Because there's nothing uncertain about the annual checkup. Well, this is a device to get 500 bucks under the tax screen to you. So an, a, an insurance system that had a greater cash market, that, uh, you know, was really an insurance system and not a tax scam, I think would get rid of a lot of that stuff on the, on the lower end. Next, say, just to add, yeah, so one, I, I mean, I agree totally that the, the current tax code biases us towards more generous plans and that reform could, could help um, alleviate that. Um, another thing in terms of, you know, you mentioned the co-pays and, and the ability to reduce utilization through moral hazard. There's, there seems to be a movement towards implementing something called value-based insurance design, which is to say that what private insurers could start doing is tailoring the cost sharing of a service based upon its, its cost effectiveness, right? So if we had really good data out there, for the cost effectiveness of various treatments, you could take certain medications, um, you know, for like high blood pressure and essentially have very low cost sharing for them, whereas things where the cost effectiveness is a little iffy cover them. An insurer could cover them but require higher cost sharing for those things and try and use this, this notion of incentives to push people towards higher value care and away from lower value care. So here's a reason why I want competition, because I want to pay a higher premium, and I don't want that stuff. Okay. I don't want a, you know, a limit on you know, yeah. some government but stuff. I, but I like competition because I'd love for a, a new insurer to enter the market offering and offer this, that. Uh, yeah, offering this. And offering it at a lower premium. And yeah, You I, want to go economy, I want to go business class. <laughs> Tom? Thank you. Uh, Tom Miller, AEI. Uh, Quick aside before I ask John some questions on, on Brad's remarks, you should read some of the stuff he wrote as a co-author in Pooling Health Risks for AEI okay. because the conclusion there was that the major contributor to administrative costs was marketing individual insurance, not underwriting costs. <laughs> uh, no. and, and we can squeeze out those underwriting costs. There are natural ceilings on underwriting costs because an insurer will not spend the money if they're not going to get it back. So you don't underwrite everybody. The other back-end way to deal with it is if you did a more adequately funded high-risk pool, you'd carve out the people at the extremes, and you wouldn't have to underwrite everybody else, just like we already do by pulling people out with Medicaid. John. Wait, uh, wait, wait, before you leave that one, because I, I wanted to also complain about that, 
There might be an underwriting cost in the beginning, but if you're talking about how you mark this thing to market, well, who's got all your medical records? Your insurer. So, I mean, the under the re the re underwriting cost should be quite. Can small. I can I enter in on this? And we'll, I promise you'll get. <laughs> you'll get <laughs> um, and we can talk about the the administrative cost thing. But but what ha- what happens with the the health status insurance is okay. So I'm 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 insured and I've got my policy with my existing plan. Well, sure, I might be more than happy to stick with my insurer for the next five, ten years. But in order for competition really to work, I've got to essentially threaten my current insurer that I'm I'm willing to leave. I'm willing to leave to a new insurer, right? Well, how do I how do I threaten them? Well, I, I figure out what my health status insurance payout's going to be, right? So I request this from them. I get this information about what my lump sum's going to be, and then I go out and ping four to five competing health insurers and get quotes from them about what my health insurance premium is going to be from them. And, you know, chances are I might be more than happy to stick with my current health insurer. But in order to truly discipline my current health insurer with market competition, I've got to have this information from my competitors. And I can only do that if I indeed get these premium quotes from them. And in order to get these premium quotes from them, They've got to underwrite me. They've got to figure out whether I'm a healthier or sick person. And perhaps they could do that if my current insurer was willing to share my claims, but no current health insurer is going to share those claims with a new health insurer. And so I think the end of the, the end of the day, I mean, yeah, you solve this thing, but it's going to be administratively costly. And, and so I, I, I think currently in the individual insurance market, there indeed is not a lot of Costs associated with underwriting, right? I believe that. So, so I don't think I'm caught in a pickle but here. We don't. We but, don't need to decide this. This is not for us to decide or for our government to decide. You know how these contracts get written. Sure, sure. What's costly? What rights you have in a contract? Go for it, guys. And you had a second. Sure. sure. Yep. Yes. Uh, I actually read the '95 paper about a year later, and I missed some of the equations. Uh, <laughs> and it's a little bit more perfected, but not quite there. So let's talk about. And Brad highlighted some of these the operational execution risks in going beyond the vision with a telescope to actually delivering the product. Uh, there's an, a, a soft assumption you address these issues but don't carry them through. If you're going to have the, the handoffs and the switches, you're going to have to have different health status insurance prices because you're going to want different tiers of policies unless you've got a commoditized policy, which is the only thing you're settling up for. So unless you kind of think of those bands and paying different amounts, that, 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 that payoff could pay off different things. In the same way, using net present value financial estimates are not the same thing as modeling long-term health care costs, which mm-hmm. – now, you could do this. You can think about more exotic indexes, derivatives, and type of things like that. Not whether people want to make a business model out of it, uh, but that's the problem of projecting that far into the future. It's not just a matter of extrapolating a discount rate in that regard. Some lesser things. If you're going to allow people to drop out of having the standard or the, the regular insurance coverage, you're going to have to require they maintain that health status insurance coverage. Otherwise, you're going to get some skewed drop-ins and drop-outs among high-cost and, and, and low-risk people which will change what are your models of the pool where everything equalizes in that regard. In the same way you danced around settling up with the healthy folks, good luck in getting money out of people sitting in an account when they're healthy and shouldn't and, and, and cost less. Uh, but that's the back end of that, and you're going to have to settle up with them as well as among the costly people. Otherwise, the projections are going to get skewed in one direction. Uh, so I'll just say one, one good points. Um, 
One way, one vision I had on the train coming up here, uh, one way it could work, which might address your your first point, is um, suppose what you had was um, you have a right to buy health insurance, you have a right to continue in this one, um, and it's uh, and it's so the right the contract doesn't so much say you have a lump sum, but the contract says we'll pay your health insurance premiums forever. Um, and but it's also collateralized, so there's a lump sum in there, which is now just really a guarantee against bankruptcy. Uh, that sounds like a, a clean way of handling it that might address some of your contract cost questions. Tom, not technically a question, but I'll let you get away with it because you're Tom, <laughs> Professor. Professor <laughs> Professor Book. Hi, uh, I, I have an easy question and a hard question, and I'm, I've been debating. I'm going to go with the hard question. Both of you have been talking a lot about competition, how great that would be, but the price of insurance depends not just on the individual's health condition, but it depends on the price of the underlying health care services, as well as on the utilization. And you've talked a little about utilization, but if everybody's insured and, and, and everybody's utilization is controlled only by a small fixed copay, how are you going to get competition between health care providers and the individual health care services because that's what you eventually need to drive down true costs, by which I mean not expenditures, but actually unit costs and eventually premiums. Thank you. So, so I think there, I mean, you need the private health insurers um, negotiating contracts with the providers, right? I mean, they just, they just need to negotiate these payment rates. They need to negotiate clever payment rates to, to pay for performance. And and if and if there's enough health insurers competing with these providers, the the ones that get it right, the best, the private health insurers that come up with the best way of, of structuring reimbursement to try and limit some of these problems caused by moral hazard, then we as consumers will in turn gravitate towards the private health insurers that seem to have gotten it right. Right. I, I would add um, so co-pays and deductibles are the standard way of giving the consumer some incentive. And, and you know, we'll see where this settles out. Uh, you know, I actually, I would think, personally, I would, I would like a lower premium and a much higher deductible, and I would like to have a functioning cash market so that when I walk into the University of Chicago hospitals, they don't lick their chops and say, there's a fat wallet I'm going to grab. Um, but if I can real quick, but I mean, the, the problem starts, I mean, once you, once you start pushing this, this notion of increasing the deductible so that we get good incentives to be good shoppers, then that in turn causes some risk segmentation in that the, the healthier people are benefiting more from a low, sorry, from a high deductible and the sicker people are getting hurt more from this high deductible. But also, it's not obvious this is a policy problem. I mean, you know, where, where's the market? This is yeah, yeah. something that we can negotiate. So there's two mechanisms here. There's sort of the copay deductible mechanism. Then there's insurance companies that fight harder with their reimbursements and then offer you a lower premium, but then you've got to take only their preferred providers. These are market mechanisms that, that address this problem. Um, it's not obvious that, you know, anybody in Washington has to think about that issue too hard. And if I could just make one more point. I mean, I would want to echo the point you made earlier. I mean, I think we really are approaching this from the same angle, right? We're agreeing about, like, the vast majority of stuff we're talking about. And so, you know, don't get the impression that I'm hostile, right? I mean, I think we're kind of just uh, taking the approach that, that economists sometimes do in, in seminars in which, you know, you kind of put these things out on the table and you have a beer afterwards. So. Now, uh, were you suggesting that there was something special about health status insurance that would make it difficult for 
Uh, to, to lower the unit cost? Okay. Well, then. All right. Next. Ralph? Can you, Ralph, can you wait, wait for the mic? So, okay. How we find your finance hat again? If I'm a, um, a diabetic and I have uh, $20,000 worth of expenditures each year, probability of one, and I'm paying a $2,000 premium, am I not doing a, an equivalent of arbitrage, and is that not misallocating risk? And why, if, if that is true, why is that not more in the economic literature, that, that people <clears throat> that are currently in group plans right now uh, are guaranteed in some cases to pay uh, premiums much less than their expected benefits. It, but, but I, I don't get the what's the, the equivalent of arbitrage. In other words, they're making they're 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 paying only two thousand dollars in premium. They're getting twenty thousand dollars of benefit guaranteed. To arbitrage that, I'd have to go get liver disease. I mean, how do I how do I short liver disease? Well, because I, 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 by paying two thousand dollars, I'm getting twenty thousand dollars of benefits. Yeah, well, you're, you're uh, that's that's the, isn't that the same as saying if I burn my house down, I get a check. I mean, people's houses burn down get checks. People who get liver disease get paid, and, and right, that's right. that's the upside of insurance. Right. The downside right. is people who pay premiums and don't. So you don't see a problem then? I mean, because because in, in, in community rated and group insurance plans, everybody pays the same premium, uh, regardless of risk. And so uh, it, we we do too. I mean, in in our plans too. You know, you I, know. I, actually, I think that uh, uh, Brad's book says something about that. Which, the one that Tom mentioned, which is that we don't all pay the same premium. Uh, we may pay the same nominal premium in terms of the, that's the amount that's de- deducted from our paychecks. But people with high-cost conditions end up taking lower salaries in order to get those health benefits. So, so in effect, in real terms, they end up paying more in order to get that coverage. So um, – and sometimes it's because they they do decide I'm going to take this job with this with these health benefits that I need. Sometimes it's just because employers give smaller raises to to workers as they get older because they know that those workers uh, uh, cost the company more in terms of health benefits. Um, so I, I'm still not sure I understand your question, but there is there is that aspect to it. But that's uh, that's the that benefit they're receiving from the year earlier pool. Well, so I think what what our work has illustrated, hopefully, is that this underwriting occurs on application. But once a uh, so imagine you've applied, you're a healthy person, you get an individual policy, and then three years later you get sick. I think what we've illustrated is that your premium doesn't jump to reflect that you got sick. This you, is not on your plan. This is under current conditions. Under current no, no, current. When we, look at, when we look at individual insurance currently in states without community rating and guaranteed issue, right, so like states like Maryland, I mean, we pool them all together and look at the data. We don't see patterns that are consistent with jumps after someone gets sick. We see patterns that are consistent with people having the type of insurance that, that John's talking about, time-consistent health insurance. Um, woman in the back middle? I don't know what to call the last row or the first section. Maybe I'll call it that. <laughs> Roberta Gluck. Uh, my question focuses on access from two different perspectives. First of all, access for poor people. Um, do your plans include 
of subsidies for people who cannot pay insurance premiums. And secondly, access from the point of view of the provider. Uh, we are recent arrivals in the D.C. area and found that there were many providers in this area that don't accept any insurance at all. They have boutique practices. And what in your plans would prevent providers from simply opting out and skimming off the most affluent um, folks to provide them with the best insurance? Um, so there's three questions. Uh, access. Uh, yeah, so uh, poor people have problems buying all sorts of good things. Um, if you think it's important for them to buy health care, which is, uh, you know, you, you could talk about a voucher system for poor people to buy health care. I mean, th this is about health care, really, as opposed to um, insurance and, and how long it lasts. So um, I don't think we have anything special to say. Um, well, I, I'll just note I don't have a plan. I don't have a proposal I'm advocating. Um, but I will say that I'm very receptive to the notion of scrapping the current tax treatment of employment-based health insurance and replacing that with uh, uh, income-related tax credit so that a low-income person near poverty gets a tax credit that's comparable to their to the I mean, value of the premium. I think we like the idea of vouchers instead of public schools and because we like people to get education. I, I don't see why that principle can't apply to if you think people should have access, should have be able to buy more health insurance than they would naturally given reduced circumstances. That's fine. Now, providers, um, why sh if a doctor wants to say the heck with the system, I'm charging cash, what, why do we want to stop him from doing that? Well, I think the question was about there are some providers who simply say, I'm tired of dealing with the paperwork. I take cash. Uh, I'm, um, I don't see what's wrong. Why should we stop people from opting out of, of the system if they want to? I, and the third answer to your question is, is competition. In a competitive system, yeah, if you arrive in a new town, it's awfully hard to get insurance sometimes. Well, that's why we need a more competitive system that's uh, actually trying to vie for your business as opposed to get rid of people. Okay. Uh, well, one last question on the aisle here. I, this Bob Blanford from CHCC again. The second questioner asked a question that I think was misinterpreted. Uh, I think what he was getting at is medical science is advancing and more and more extremely valuable, very expensive things may be coming online. <clears throat> and premiums, if they were to be covered, would have to rise somehow over what had been pre-agreed just because there's too many good things out there. And how will these policies Will these renewable policies handle something like that? Uh, yeah, so I, I thought about that a little bit. you got two choices. Um, uh, there's nothing that stops insurers from insuring against that sort of stuff. So if you want to pay a little more premium, you can get insurance against technological advance that would raise all, all premiums. Uh, or we, what we can do is simply say, look, you only have the right to reclassification within the current scheme, and if the current premiums all go up reflecting higher costs of, of treatment or technology and so forth, you don't get the right to that. So just choose if you want to be insured against uh, those kind of events or don't, and, and we can write the contract. That's good. Whereas right now Medicare says we will insure you against 100 percent of what is invented. You could... Maybe insure against less than that. Except we'll only pay 70% well, of what it actually costs. But. <laughs> of, of what they charge. Yeah. So uh, with, with that, I want to thank you very much for joining us. And I want to thank Professors Cochran and Herring. And I hope you'll join us upstairs for lunch in our winter garden. Thanks.
Good show. I think so. Thank you very much. I thought that went great. Yeah. Good to see you again. This was excellent to have Brad come along. I know. Lots of members and yeah, yeah. gives us a chance to discuss. It's nice when the guy who's particularly doesn't disagree with you all that much. Oh, sure. But, yeah. um, but uh, I, was, I was surprised you didn't 